Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. When the Supreme Court repealed PASPA, which was a federal ban on online sports betting back in 2018, before that, you couldn't bet legally in the United States. I didn't actually know this at the time, but I came in as the only female CEO, at least in the United States, in the gaming sector. I can assure you the House does not always win. And, and the reality is we don't always want the House to win, right? It'd be hard to have a sustainable business if, as a consumer if you're losing every week. Last year, we were anywhere between 42 to 50 plus percent of the market. The Super Bowl is literally the biggest moment in FanDuel, and candidly, it's the biggest moment in sports betting. Let me tell you, there's some heart palpitations going on. That's Amy Howe, CEO of FanDuel, the leading mobile gaming company in the U.S. As more states gradually move to legalize sports gambling, the industry is expected to grow into a $40 billion market. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Amy because FanDuel epitomizes the fast-changing dynamics that are remaking the sports business, and Super Bowl Sunday is its coming out party. Linking up with NFL legend Rob Gronkowski to create a first-of-its-kind activation on the big day, FanDuel is also diversifying into media broadcasting, new gaming categories, and a wide array of sports leagues. Amy is the former chief operating officer of Ticketmaster and a one-time partner at McKinsey & Company. At the helm of FanDuel, she's betting big on the future of easy, secure sports gambling. Amy and her team have an intriguing game plan, but they're also quick to call audibles when conditions on the field demand it. A note before we dive into the episode, there are some references to gambling terminology that might be helpful to know. A parlay is a single bet that links together two or more individual wagers, all of which need to happen to win. A prop bet is a wager tied to a specific action or an individual player's accomplishment, unrelated to the final outcome of the game. Okay, let's get into it. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. (laughs) That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, 
As someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Amy Howe, the CEO of FanDuel. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So some businesses talk about the Super Bowl as an analogy, like what's your Super Bowl moment? But for FanDuel, your Super Bowl moment is, in fact, the Super Bowl, right? And this year particularly is a watershed moment. Arizona is the first legal sports better state to host a Super Bowl, which means right from the kickoff, people inside the stadium can be betting on everything. FanDuel TV is going to be broadcasting on site alongside other networks. What's it feel like as we approach this big day? So we always joke, the minute the Super Bowl is over, we start planning for the next Super Bowl. It is literally the biggest moment in FanDuel. And candidly, it's the biggest moment in sports betting. So if you go back and rewind the clock to 2021, we took 4 million bets on the platform. There were 8 million bets in 22. And so as more states come online every year, by definition, you have new records being set. This year is exciting, right? If you go all the way back to when the Supreme Court repealed PASPA, which was a, a federal ban on online sports betting back in 2018, before that, you couldn't bet legally in the United States, right? So to think about the fact that for the very first time, we are in Arizona, which is the first state to be legalized since then, it's really exciting. You know, this year we have Rob Gronkowski, who is going to be kicking a field goal live. Why was that activation and that character the one that you chose? Well, set aside the fact that Gronk and I both grew up in Buffalo, New York. That's not why we did the, <laughs> the ad. Uh, but no, I mean, listen, as we sat down and we strategized around this year's Super Bowl, we said, you know, we wanted to create a moment and we wanted it to be memorable, right? And we didn't want to just create another fun advertisement. We actually wanted to be part of the Super Bowl itself. And so, you know, the teams got ideating and they came up with this idea to say, let's go get Rob Gronkowski and see if he'd be willing to kick a field goal live. His first reaction was, you want me to kick a field goal? That doesn't make any sense. And then all of a sudden, I think he started to get excited about that. We enlisted the support of Adam Vinatieri, who has actually been helping him train. And, you know, we're working with Kay Adams, who's been one of our phenomenal talents. And we've got so far received over a billion impressions, you know, well over 200 stories. And I think the excitement around this is palpable, right? You hear it's one of those ads that's gone viral. It's not without its risks, but we think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, we, we've rarely seen a brand new industry scale as quickly as mobile sports betting has. As you say, five years ago, it didn't exist at all, right? And FanDuel was just a daily fantasy company, and now it's a multi-billion dollar business. You came to FanDuel just two years ago. What about the trajectory since then has surprised you? 
I came to FanDuel in the middle of the pandemic where I was at Live Nation Entertainment and I knew the industry, you know, had these phenomenal talents and I was in the sports industry already, but not gaming. And I think the biggest surprise to me is just how quickly the industry is scaling. But I think more importantly is the role that it is playing in the lives of sports fans, right? I mean, if you look at Super Bowl is a great example well over 70 to 80 percent of the bets will be on player props. And so you think about, you know, the game, even if the game is a blowout, you're completely invested in that game because you want to see if you, you know, predicted the first TD score and did you get the score the correct and did you predict how many yards, uh, you know, so-and-so is going to have. So it really is kind of changing the narrative of sports, but we view ourselves very much as an entertainment platform, not just a sports betting platform. I came from an entertainment industry, so to walk into an industry that is on fire with the leading company in America, it's been very gratifying. I imagine you now watch sports through a different lens than the casual viewer. Can you still enjoy the game or are you distracted by the thought of FanDuel's win probability? Does it make you particularly anxious for a major event like the Super Bowl? It's the biggest acquisition moment we have, but there's some heart palpitations going on because you never know really how the game is going to turn out. Last year, we were in SoFi Stadium. My husband and my kids were there with me and we're there with all the executives. And there's a, an executive, his name is Connor Farron, and he runs our risk and trading and our sports product organization. And he has decades of experience, right, of setting odds and determining prices and innovating these markets. And so anytime something would happen, right, we would look at Connor and he'd either give us a thumbs up, a thumbs down or yeah, that was OK. So, you know, the coin toss, for instance, 50 percent of the states you can actually bet on whether it's going to be heads or tails. So after the coin toss, you know, our suite would erupt if we actually got it right. <laughs> so, you know, at some level, you, know, you might argue it takes a little bit of the romance out. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all fans. Interestingly enough, if you actually look at the way consumers bet, it's not always rational, right? People bet on what they want to happen. They want a high scoring game. They want a lot of touchdowns. So you typically tend to see same game parlays, right, that will have high scoring games and multiple players scoring touchdowns. So again, it kind of comes back to that narrative and how sports betting is really shifting. My impulse was always that sort of the house always wins, like it's set up that way. But it sounds like some of these games can be lost leaders for you, depending on how the performances pan out relative to people's hopes. I can assure you the house does not always win. It's funny. My husband said the same thing. He said, well, honey, doesn't the, you know, the money falls on even side. So, you know, you're always going to do fine. And that's actually not the case. And, and the reality is we don't always want the house to win, right? It'd be hard to have a sustainable business if, you know, if, as a consumer, if you're losing every week. You mentioned that you have to sort of make sure that the fans are winning sometimes, right? How much of your role at FanDuel is making sure it remains trusted as a brand as opposed to about what the product is? Listen, I will tell you, these are not predetermined outcomes, right? The risk and trading organization is they're calculating odds. They have highly sophisticated models that are taking in powerful data signals, but there's also a fair bit of judgment that they overlay on top of it. But at the end of the day, if we cannot build and maintain a trusted platform, we're not going to be in business, right? We're a highly regulated industry. Consumers are trusting us with a lot of confidential information well beyond what you would ever have to provide, right? If you're signing up for an Amazon or, or an Uber, 
So making sure that we can keep their private information confidential and that we're protecting the platform from bad actors is one of the most important things that we do. FanDuel is twice the size of DraftKings of its closest competitor. Why is that? I mean, is it about the technology and the speed and the ease about why it works? Is it about the brand and why it's trusted? You know, share numbers are always going to move around a bit. But last year, we were anywhere between 42 to 50 plus percent of the market. You know, I think ultimately it comes down to a few things. Years ago, obviously, FanDuel was a fantasy sports platform, but we had invested a lot to build equity in that online gaming space. And so we had resonance, right, when PASPA was repealed and online sports betting was starting to be legalized. So if you look at the numbers, we're acquiring customers much more efficiently than many of our competitors. Some of that has to do with what we've invested to build the brand, but we've also just been a lot more disciplined, I think, around how we're spending those marketing dollars. At the end of the day, your brand and what you're doing to acquire customers, all that does is actually gets customers in the door. And ultimately, we believe it's you know superior product that is going to prevail. And if you look at our retention numbers, right, we're almost 80% year-over-year retention. I think there's a candidly a misconception in the marketplace that all products are created equal, and, and that's just simply not true, right? In most categories, we tend to have a, a broader assortment. We were the first to market with products like Same Game Parlay, but also, you know, we have a what we call a structural margin advantage because we price a lot of those markets in-house. And so, you add all those things up and it adds to, you know, to better retention, but also better economics in terms of how we're able to grow that business. There's also ways to differentiate around what the betting customer cares about. They want to be able to deposit easily, but they also want to be able to withdraw their earnings when they win. And so things like withdraw time actually matter. In the end, we think, you know, two or three at most scale players will exist you know, if you look at the field right now, there are almost 60, 60 online sports betting operators, and over 50 of those will have single-digit share positions. And, you know, in steady state, that's not what the industry is going to look like. We had uh, Las Vegas Raiders CEO Sarah Douglas Morgan on the show not too long ago, who talked about being an avid fantasy sports participant herself, although once she joined the Raiders, you know, she set that aside. <laughs> you're a sports fan, but I understand you're not historically a gambler, did that make the transition to this job odd, a certain different kind of learning curve for you? I didn't actually know this at the time, but I came in as the only female CEO, at least in the United States, in the gaming sector. They didn't hire me because I was a deep subject matter expert in online gaming. But Bob, if you look at my background, I came from Live Nation, where I was running Ticketmaster. So I had pattern recognition, how to run a technology company. But I think more importantly, you know, I was a partner at McKinsey & Company for almost 15 years. And so when you're working across a broad range of industries, by definition, you have to get up to speed quickly, right? Whether it's a new industry or a new client. And so that muscle was already there. It didn't take me that long to actually figure out the industry. And listen, on a personal note, I have three boys. So... <laughs> Sports absolutely dominate my household. With this market growing and changing so fast, looking back over the last two years, are there a few decisions that you think, oh, these were the key decisions that I had to make in this environment? When I came into the organization, it was very clear to me 
that the pace at which we were growing was exponential. You know, if you look at some of the market projections, we think the addressable market could be $40 billion at maturity. So as you think about that pace of growth, you know you have to think differently about the structure of the organization and what kind of leadership team you need to surround yourself. But we were also at that point in time where we had to start making trade-offs around how you allocate resources and what gets on the roadmap. In the early days, you could kind of say yes to everything, right? And it was not that it wasn't complicated, but the what you needed to do was have a product and you needed to be a market on day one. Well, as the complexity of our business started to grow, right, we're in fantasy sports, we're in iGaming, we have a, the largest racing business, you have to make the right trade-offs. We needed to start to say no to certain things and then really lean in to parts of the business where it was very clear that the growth was going to come from. Sports is such a broad canvas. I know the NFL has been a particularly critical partner for you, but, you know, FIFA is a different business than the NBA and the Olympics are different than the PGA and college sports are different than professional and people bet on all of them, right? Like, how do you balance the different rules and regulations in each one? Like, do you grow them differently? Do you prioritize them differently? Or is it the same playbook? We do prioritize them differently, right? So NFL is a critical acquisition moment, right? The NFL season is typically when I can bring in a lot of new sports betting users to the platform. And there's a ton of excitement around betting on those games. NBA is also an important acquisition sport, but the handle on that is significant just because you have significantly more games in the NBA than you would in the NFL. And then if you look at a sport like a tennis or a golf, right, they're not going to have the same level of prominence that an NFL or NBA does, but they're still a very important part of the portfolio, right? When you have the Masters and you have Tiger Woods competing or, you know, when Serena Williams was playing last year, right, those are really key moments that attract consumers to our platform, right? And, and many types of consumers, not just people who are avid fans of, of golf and tennis. And so, you know, there's different roles that these sports play in the portfolio. And strategically, you have to think differently about what you're investing and, and how you manage those so we don't have a single playbook for all sports. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the <laughs> newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook.
Before the break, we heard FanDuel CEO Amy Howe talk about the growth of the platform, the role of the Super Bowl, and what might be on tap for other sports. Now we delve into the challenges around responsible gaming, and Amy shares her leadership insights about taking responsibility for the welfare of your users, collaborating with competitors, and how to defend your market share while still playing offense. As you mentioned, you have three sons, so do I, and as a parent, I I sometimes have mixed feelings about gambling because I never know what they're going to (laughs) do. And I, I wonder how you think about that, whether you feel like you have to protect your customers like you would your children to act and bet responsibly. I do, Bob. And honestly, when I was contemplating coming to FanDuel, I thought long and hard about this. I knew I was coming into a global organization where responsible gaming was embraced at the top of the org. And last year, we put out a target that 75% of our customers need to be using one of our responsible gaming tools by 2030. And you're right, I'm you know a mom of three boys, but nobody can bet legally until they're 21 and until they're in a state where it's legalized. I'm sure you know Craig Carton, well-known personality, and Craig has a, a well-documented challenge with gambling, and he's in a great place right now, and he has been enlisted as our responsible gaming ambassador to go out and educate you know, young men who we know are, are more at risk. We invest in tools. We're partnering with the NFL to say, hey, can we establish together, right, a, a code of conduct where regardless of what the regulators are telling us to do, we're going to go above and beyond that because it's the right thing to do to protect our consumers. If we don't build this industry the right way from the ground up, we're not going to have a very viable business in the long term. When you talk to the NFL, do you try to help them evolve their rules around gaming? Like Gronk's a retired player, so he can be a spokesperson. If Patrick Mahomes really believes his team's going to win, he can't bet on himself. The NFL was actually the last major league to formally forge partnerships with online sports betting operators, in large part because they wanted to make sure they were doing it the right way. But we have a lot of conversations, right, around how do we collectively make sure that we're putting the right protections in place, not just for players, but obviously there's big coaching staffs and trainers and a lot of folks that, you know, potentially could have access to information. And so I think we've been incredibly vigilant. And that partnership is very strong, right? If we see any concerns around betting activity that looks suspicious, we'll share that information with the league. And and there's actually transparent sharing across competitors as well. So it's such an important thing to get right, especially since we're still in the relatively early innings of this industry. In the investment world, trading on different financial products used to just happen in Wall Street. And that has become sort of democratized. More people are essentially trading for their own accounts. The proliferation of platforms like yours makes that a more democratized possibility. This is aside from the issue of gambling addicts, but like, do you look at the market of professional gamblers as a community that is an opportunity for you? Or, you know, is it a worry that people who do this all the time might come up with risk strategies that make your own risk calculations more complicated? I'm not sure the average sports betting consumer understands there is still a massive illegal or illicit betting market. 
There are 18 states where sports betting is legalized, which translates to roughly 40 percent of the population. And oh, by the way, the three biggest states, California, Florida and Texas, it is not legal to place a bet in those states. And so if you are betting on a Bavada or MyBookie or, you know, pick your favorite site, you're typically betting on an offshore operator that doesn't have the same standards that we have. You know, my 16-year-old son could go sign up for an offshore operator. It's a big part of obviously why we're trying to regulate the industry. Our platform is designed to go after more sophisticated sports bettors, but also the casual user. You know, not surprisingly, in the early days, you tend to get folks who are more comfortable and they understand how sports betting works. But over time, you get more and more of that recreational user coming onto the platform. So you mentioned many states, big states, still yet to come on the platform. Despite all the growth you've had, there's a lot of opportunity still ahead. There are also new competitors looming, like Fanatics. How do you think about protecting what you have while also extending with each new market? It's something that I and my leadership team are focused on every day. We do believe very strongly that a scale advantage is going to matter. But we also believe that a first mover advantage helps in this market, right? So if you take a market like New Jersey, New Jersey has been legalized since 2018. So if you're just coming into the market now, you're playing a little bit of catch up, right? You've got to either convince customers that they should switch from another platform or you've got to go after the customer, which at this point will be a more recreational user. So I can't control what other competitors are going to do, but we're focused on trying to strengthen every moat we have. It's an interesting situation you're in with your competition that on the one hand, obviously you compete. On the other hand, you're collaborating to try to make this whole field trusted so that more states do open up. You're exactly right. We have great relationships with the folks at DraftKings and BetMGM and, and Caesars and others because we do have to work together to make sure that it is the right thing for the consumer. It's the right thing for local governments as well, right? Because you think about the tax revenue that the states that legalized are now getting, nobody was getting that revenue before. And when a new state opens up, is it like a land rush? <laughs> a little bit. Well, it's interesting because this is where our legacy of being in the fantasy sports business comes back to help us. In nearly every state, I have an engaged set of users who are already on the platform using a fantasy sports product. And so I can leverage that engagement and make sure that they understand legalized sports betting is coming in the state. And the way we've designed the product is we've integrated our what we call our account and wallet system. So if you're on our fantasy sports platform, it's actually very easy to move into our sports betting product. Ohio is a great example. Ohio went live on New Year's Eve. So as the ball was dropping in New York, flip a switch and Ohio is now legal. We had close to 70% of our daily fantasy users who moved over and placed a bet legally in the state of Ohio. So it's been a huge advantage. Well, Amy, this has been fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Bob. Really enjoyed it. And now a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. 
She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing, and the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans, and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our chief content officer is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our music director is Ryan Holliday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howard, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Leah Saramedis, Chineme Ozuquena, Alfonso Bravo, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.